Our gospel for this morning comes from the gospel of John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jewish people was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Judeans then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Judeans then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Please be seated. We thank you, God, for this Lenten journey as we reflect together and journey together, contemplating your love for us in Jesus, who taught and healed, who suffered and died and rose again to bring us new and eternal life. May your love, hope, and grace fill our hearts and our world this day. In Jesus' name, amen. What if you were to try to follow every single rule in the Bible for an entire year? That was the quest of an author named A.J. Jacobs, who wrote one of the more entertaining books on religion that I've ever read, called The Year of Living Biblically, one man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. It's the story of Jacob's attempt to live by every rule in the Bible for an entire year, to live what he calls the ultimate biblical life. Jacob's is a writer who specializes in these all-or-nothing quests. He spent 18 months reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. He later embarked on a quest to get into the best shape humanly possible, and he wrote books about them both. Jacob's is Jewish. But Jewish, he says, in the way that the Olive Garden is Italian, <laughs> which is to say, fairly nominally. In the year of living biblically, he takes on all the rules of the Bible. He identifies about 700 commandments, laws, and rules, and sets out to learn and live by them. He obeys the famous one, the Ten Commandments that we heard, love thy neighbor as thyself, be fruitful and multiply. He and his wife got pregnant and had a baby during this year but also the hundreds of often ignored ones. Do not wear clothes of mixed fiber. Do not shave your beard. Stone adulterers. He even trots out a sheep around Times Square. On his very first day of this experiment, he wrote, From the moment I wake up, the Bible consumes my life. I can't do anything without fearing I'm breaking a biblical law. Before I so much as inhale or exhale, I have to run through a long mental checklist of the rules. It begins when I open my closet to get dressed. The Bible says to avoid wearing clothes of mixed fiber, so I have to mothball my poly cotton t-shirt. I go to the living room, click on my power book, and open my biblical rules file. But wait, am I allowed to use my computer? The Bible, as you might have guessed, doesn't address this issue specifically. So I give it a tentative yes. Maybe sometime down the road, 
I could try stone tablets. The late Rachel Held Evans wrote a similar book about her experiment to follow all the rules in the Bible, those specifically pertaining to women, in a book called A Year of Biblical Womanhood, subtitled How a Liberated Woman Found Herself Sitting on Her Roof, Covering Her Head, and Calling Her Husband Master. She makes in this book her own clothes, covers her head, obeys her husband, rises before dawn, abstains from gossip, remains silent in church, and even camps out on her front yard. Because of certain purity laws, she can't touch her husband for almost two weeks a month. And the Bible says that uncovered hair cannot be cut, so she let her hair grow for the year. She addresses her husband as master for a week and even on tags on Christmas gifts. She praises her husband at the city gates, holding up a sign that says, Dan is awesome, at the welcome sign to their hometown in Dayton, Ohio. She sits on their roof because, as Scripture says, better to sit on a rooftop than to live with a quarrelsome wife. Both books are funny and poignant memoirs about encountering the Bible. Jacobs and Held Evans gain wisdom and spiritual insight and also reveal the impossibility of fully keeping the biblical laws and ultimately the limitations of the law and the way that we approach it. In real life, we are always picking and choosing which to apply and which to follow. Speaking for her own evangelical tribe, Held Evans says, Now we evangelicals have a nasty habit of throwing the word biblical around like it's Martin Luther's middle name. We especially like to stick to it in front of stick it in front of loads of other words like economics, sexuality, politics, and marriage to create the impression that God has definitive positions about such things, opinions that just so happen to correspond with our own. Despite insisting claims that we don't pick and choose what parts of the Bible we take seriously, using the word biblically pers- biblical prescriptively like this almost always involves selectivity. These books also show that it's impossible to keep all the biblical laws for an entire year, let alone an entire day. It's hard to keep the Ten Commandments. Not taking the Lord's name in vain while you drive in Philadelphia? Honoring your parents? Remembering the Sabbath? Not doing any work after church? Not coveting somebody's ox or donkey? We hear those commandments in the first reading from Exodus and we think, "Uh uh-oh, even the ones we feel safe on. Martin Luther expounded and expanded the meanings of these commandments in his small catechism. When it says, you shall not murder, one we should be able to keep, he says, we should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in their body, but help and support them in every physical need. If we didn't fall short already, now we do. We not only struggle to keep these rules, we struggle even to remember them, even the Ten Commandments. And pride and anger and lust and envy and greed are like old acquaintances we'd rather not run into, but always seem to keep turning up. In trying to avoid one sin, sometimes we commit another. We feel guilty for what we've done or haven't done. We wonder what all this does to our relationship with God, if anything, and if it all matters anyway. And we often don't pray about it because we don't want to let God know that we know that God knows that we know that God knows. (laughs) And so we end up going through life like Jacob's with a quiet obsession about whether we have done enough or too much, whether we are living a good life, the life that God wants us to live. And this is nothing new. 
When he was a monk, Martin Luther was completely obsessed about the rules of the Bible. He would keep track of every little transgression and confess it to his spiritual director. Luther felt that he had to purge himself of every little sin so that his conscience and his soul would be clear and pure. And living this way became so utterly exhausting and so devoid of grace that Luther's own spiritual director told him to give it a break and get over it. In his own experience, Luther discovered that it was just no way to live for a monk or for anybody else. And so he reinterpreted the way that we think about the law, all the rules in the Bible. First, he says, the first use of the law is for good order. You shall not murder, steal, commit adultery are all good laws that lead to a better life and a better and safer world. The law is a gift from God, and we seek to follow it the best we can. But second, and most importantly, the law drives us to the gospel. Despite our efforts to keep the commandments, we fail and fail gloriously. In a single day, a single hour, we break countless commandments and teachings of Jesus. It is simply impossible to keep all the biblical rules all the time, as Jacob's and Held Evans found out. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the other 690 rules. And so the second use of the law is to drive us to Jesus and to the good news that we are forgiven, redeemed, saved from sin, and obsessing over the law. One of my old professors has said that the chief function of the law is not to show us an easy way to heaven, which with a little hard work we can reach, but to show us our sin, how infinitely far we are from heaven, God, and our neighbor. He says the Christian life, like baptism, goes from drowning to rising, from death to resurrection, from confession of sin to forgiveness. Thus Martin Luther writes against those who think the commandments are easy, who therefore think that they have time to fulfill God's counsels. They fail to see that no one is able to keep even one of the Ten Commandments as it ought to be kept. He says, whatever else we do with the Ten Commandments, we can do nothing worse than to ignore their main function, to put us to death by showing our sin and driving us to the one place where there is help, the gospel. It is in Jesus Christ alone that we have our hope, This is not a matter of declaring a wrong right or telling others to buck up and try harder. This is a matter of the gospel alone, the good news of forgiveness, life, and salvation that comes to us freely as God's gracious word in Christ. The commandments, the laws, are not a how-to program of how to get into heaven. Rather, they are like a mirror that show us who we really are and where we really stand which is in utter need of God's grace. They also show us that when we finally stop trying to be perfect, because we're not, and when we finally stop trying to please everyone, which we can't, and when we stop obsessing over our sin and the law, ours and others, and trying to earn God's love, when we stop talking and start listening, stop busying ourselves and are just still, what we are finally left with is not a sense of our own failure. What we are left with is a compassionate God. God, who despite our sins and our shortcomings, relentlessly loves us. In our gospel today, we hear the story of Jesus turning over the market tables in the temple. And this event happens early on in John's gospel. In the other gospels, it happens towards the end, just before his passion. And here, it's a preview of what Jesus can and will do in his ministry. In a sense, when Jesus turns over his tables, 
He's not just railing against the commercialization of religious practice. He is taking on an entire system of fulfilling the law and ritual obligation that often declared some people pure and others not. Here, Jesus points to the limitations of the law itself. And people ask Jesus, as they often did, by what authority do you do this? It says, the Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was talking about his death and resurrection. And in a sense here today, Jesus turns over the tables of our lives. All our striving to earn our salvation, the little deals we make with God, our little mental and spiritual checklists, our eternal balance sheets, all our spiritual superstitions. We are saved in the end not by what we have done or left undone or our ability to recite all the laws and keep them as if we could, but we are saved through Christ and God's grace alone. What we find in these commandments, as great as important as they are, they are not the end-all and be-all for us. They are just the beginning of a life in Christ, a life of grace. Amen.